0: Politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the Ageless Wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello and good afternoon. Thanks for joining us for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. We're here every Tuesday at one o'clock in the afternoon. We have a real important show for you today. We're going to talk about global climate change, but particularly about the drought in the western United States as uh, it has become so self-evident, the incredible heat this summer, the uh, hottest years, this decade in history. The uncontrollable wildfires throughout the West, hundreds at a time, thousands of wildfires. And as I plan to discuss with my guest, a real strong parallel between climate change and COVID that I'd like to emphasize. Now, my guest is Andy Lipkus from the Tree People, an organization that he's run for 40 years, only recently has he retired. I last interviewed Andy when we were both in our 20s, in the 1980s, across town at another radio station, and although we've followed each other's work, uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to him since then, so I'm excited for today's show. But The Tree People is about so much more than trees and has networked with numerous other organizations as climate change has accelerated, caught some people by surprise, but many people have been telling us for four decades or more that this is what we're in store for. And uh, so we're going to talk about water conservation and water politics a little bit, as well as the importance of trees and the environment and creating tree canopies in the cities. Some areas of town have very, very few trees. And of course, those are the same areas that suffer from even more extreme heat. I'm going to be brief on my opening remarks because I want to give Andy as much time as possible today. But I'm going to talk to him about, and I really want to develop the parallel between COVID and global warming, between the idea that Many people, especially the anti-mask, COVID-is-a-hoax people, they think of themselves as separate and alienated and isolated, and what they call freedom is really a lonely sense of being on their own and refusing to cooperate or coordinate. If we've learned anything from environmental collapse, and in particular from covid It's that we are one body, not only the life support system, but humanity is like a single body. The way COVID has been passed from individual to individual, from big cities to every corner of the world, and even the most remote villages deep in the Amazon jungles and in the far-flung corners of the Arctic, COVID exists as a pandemic. So we are not separate. We are all connected, and our fates are intertwined. COVID teaches us that. Global warming teaches us that. And it's a lesson that we all need to learn so that we can work together, so that those of us who enjoy working together can enlist the support of those who, for whatever reason, I think it's fear and anxiety and stress, see themselves as separate and alone and who are most resistant to joining forces and working together. I've always said freedom is not freedom without the corresponding responsibilities that go with it. That's, that would be anarchy, not freedom. So if we're civilized people and expect to exist as civilized people, then we have to not only fight for our rights, but also live up to those allied responsibilities. So we're going to break a little early here. This is a very short break. We'll be right back with my guest, Andy Lipkis of The Tree People. Stay with us. You're listening to KPFK. KPFK supporters include the Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum's 2021 Repertory Season, sponsored by the S. Mark Taper Foundation. Shakespeare classics, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Julius Caesar Return, plus the world premiere of a new play, The Last Best Small Town. Visitors can picnic before the show in the gardens surrounding the Theatricum's outdoor amphitheater. Tickets and information available at kpfk.org or theatricum.com or by calling 310-455-3723. And we're back. This is the Ageless Wisdom on KPFK, 90.7 FM for all of Southern California. Live streaming at kpfk.org. And of course, we podcast to all podcatchers, all platforms, wherever in the world you happen to be. Thanks for joining us. A show today on the environment, the ecology. Our guest is a fellow that... Uh, I interviewed. It's hard to believe. I ran out of fingers and toes trying to figure out how how many years it's been, but it looks like it's been about thirty-five years. I'm a little embarrassed, Andy, that that we haven't talked in the interim. But you've been busy, as have you. That's true. But I wanted to bring you back on at the suggestion of some mutual friends and talk about uh, not only your your mission. Uh, the tree people organization that you worked with for uh, three decades that you founded and ran until recently. And and the bigger issue the drought we find ourselves in and, and moreover climate change. I'd like to do an overview of that with somebody who has really got their hands in the dirt and their uh, heart in the clouds. I'll say, I think you have both the micro and macro view that you can, share with our audience today. So, first of all, welcome to KPFK. Nice to see you again.
1: It's great to see you. It's great to hear your voice. Uh, And uh, it's great to be here.
0: Oh, good. Uh, For those who may not know the history of Tree People, you were a young lad when you decided to put this together, a teenager, actually. And, uh, gosh, I'm trying to to recall the date was at the... 73, when Tree People was first founded?
1: Yeah, and in fact, it was 1970 when I was 15 when uh, I discovered that the trees, or learned that the trees in the mountains surrounding Southern California were being killed by the smog. And And you were 15 years old. Yeah, and um, uh, my parents, so I grew up in Southwest LA in Baldwin Hills, Crenshaw area, and um, breathing the smog Every day, uh, it hurt after school. I, I mean, it hurt to breathe, and my mom would uh, boil a pot of water, and make steam that I could breathe when I got home from school, because my lungs were burning. And um, I did not have lung disease. I didn't have asthma or anything. It was just the typical c- condition. It hurt if we were out playing. This was before there were smog alerts. Before people were measuring the air, we were just breathing it, and you know, and it was doing its damage. Um, and I was privileged enough that my parents could send me to the mountains uh up to six thousand feet up near big bear um and uh went to summer camp at camp jca up there and grew to love the forest as a place i could play and that it was beautiful and gentle and we could breathe the air and it didn't hurt and uh after going there a few years um i got to the old the group of the highest uh the oldest kids in camp and our job then, we were selected as a youth leadership group, 12 guys and 12 girls. We were 15 and 16 years old. And every year that group does a service project to give something back to the camp that raised us or, you know, gave us something special in our lives, which it did. And uh, that was the year that the Forest Service announced that smog from Los Angeles was traveling through Southern California and up into the mountains. The trees were breathing it in and um, and they were dying. So they foresters had been noticing for close to 20 years that the trees were dying and the forest was dying and it was getting worse and worse. And they told us not only that it was dying, but that they had actually found that there were some native trees that were smog resistant. And they said, you know, government's not restoring this forest. If anyone's going to save this forest, it's you kids. And that was three months after the first earth day. (laughs) So we, we were already alerted to the need. This one was, it was getting personal. It was a forest, but it was one that, you know, we were relying on for certainly recreation and health and and, and joy. And it was being destroyed. We were told our kids wouldn't have one. And so we, this small group of kids, we, we, uh, tore up an old truck parking lot in the middle of our camp. It was used as a baseball field, but it was just a big lot that had oil sprayed on it. And they said, yeah, go ahead. You can transform that. And we created a park. We ripped up the what had become asphalt from the tar, the oil and the, the dirt. And it was like a four-inch layer that we peeled back and we plowed a bunch of cow manure into it and we built some beautiful walls. And over a three-week time we um, we really busted our butts. It looked like we would we were a probation camp crew, except that we were wearing bathing suits and we were uh, you know, co-ed, and so it was themy in more ways than one. Uh, and uh, we transformed this dead piece of land into a beautiful uh, little park. We planted grass, we planted smog resistant trees, culture pines, incense cedar, um, giant sequoia, and, Um, and the last day of camp, we dedicated that space as, you know, as a meadow, and the whole camp held hands around that meadow, 400 of us, uh, along with, you know, the, the 28 of us leadership group, and we saw birds and squirrels come into the space that we had just transformed over these weeks, and we experienced in our limited knowledge that we had healed the piece of the land uh, in the face of uh, the first Earth Day and getting a sense of some global threats. It was a profoundly transformational experience for me personally, because I took the the message of Earth Day very personally as true. And I think I was like a lot of kids back then. I was coming into adulthood at, at 15, 16, or pre-adulthood, but I didn't see a world that looked the way I wanted to. I saw one that was polluted, that looked like it was already, you know, primarily run by greed. And the things that uh, people were offering, work, work hard, make money, and you'll be happy, weren't things that were adding up for me as what would be happiness. And this thing about us youth being able to use our power physical power and our emotional power and our intellectual power and actually make a change happen together, cooperatively, something bigger than we could do by ourselves. That inspired me. So here we are looking at this, you know, naively, looking through naive eyes at birds that had, and squirrels that came to eat our grass seed and thought, thinking that, wow, this Disney moment, we've healed the world. Uh, our camp director said to us, Jerry Ringerman was his name, as we were crying and boarding the buses back to L.A., he said, if this was real for you and meaningful for you, don't just cry and don't let this be the end. Make this real back in the city. Take it with you. And that's what I did. I went, whoa, I need to get kids from all over the place up to experience this power, to experience the the power of the forest, to heal us and the power that we have as individuals working together to make a really profound difference. And that has been what I've done through my life since that moment. I'm now 66.
0: It's amazing how quickly nature rebounds if given a chance. We currently live in the Coachella Valley, uh, east of Palm Springs. And when we moved out here a few years ago, The people who owned the place before us, like many of our neighbors, were spraying for insects. And we stopped doing that. And uh, pretty soon we started hearing all these crickets. And not long after that, we started seeing lizards that we hadn't seen before. And, of course, they came in to dine on the crickets. And a couple of months after that, we started seeing the snakes that came in to eat the lizards that were eating the crickets. And soon we had road runners and hawks and owls. Within months, this whole ecosystem came back to our tiny little sliver of the desert. When I get pessimistic, Andy, and I worry about whether it's too late. And sometimes we hear scientists say, you know, in many ways it is too late. We're just going to have to tough it out. But in, in, the most accurate way it's—it's it's never really too late, is it? There's always major efforts that we can take as individuals, as communities, certainly as a nation and a world to reverse
1: climate change. Would you agree with that? I want to balance it because uh, I continue to uh, experience that. We have failed, uh, partly because we believe that uh, we can undo the things we've done. There is no question that um, we have humans have damaged every single ecosystem in the world and that we have uh, altered the climate uh, tremendously. And the climate violence that we are seeing now is exactly what was predicted. There are no surprises whatsoever. They're happening. They're happening exactly as scientists predicted. Many people denied it. Many mostly corporate interests lied about it and covered it and trained us to want to deny it. Grief, loss is a really hard thing for us to face. To deny it doesn't make it go away. The fact that we can also work and restore semblance of functionality and bring hope back, it is within reach. And, and that's what my life is committed to. Uh, but I'm not kidding myself. I mean, I went on a road trip with my son this summer. We drove from Louisiana to up to Yellowstone and then to Idaho through Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado. Wyoming, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and back into California. It was 108 degrees to 111 degrees in Idaho. It had never been that hot there before. It was horrendous. We made it back into California and um, saw the devastation from the previous three years of fires. Uh, and it was it, it was terrible. Landed at an environmental center that the Occidental... Arts Ecology Center in Sonoma County. They were building innovations, water saving, waterless toilets, things to grow food, to recycle our waste. In, in fact, many generations of these technologies, every one of them saves water, converts waste and toxins to usable soil that can grow healthy food. But I was depressed because for 40 years, Five years, this good work has been in place. Scientists, health officials, everyone continues to certify that it works, and it has never been scaled. And and solutions that I've spent much of my life uh, implementing, proving were technically, uh, scientifically, socially, and, and even economically viable, Bureaucracies who don't want to change or don't have the power to change keep not changing, and we keep not fixing this, and things keep getting worse. So we can change. We do have to change lifestyles. It does not mean giving up great stuff. There are pathways towards healing this planet that are viable, that are very doable. What worries me more than anything is that we will continue to to deny and not do or think that it's someone else's job. The thing that we have to keep in mind is that when we are thinking of solutions that might require millions of people taking action, we're using the wrong metrics. It's not everyone's fault, but everybody is participating in the destruction of the earth as a consumer. Uh, And until we all realize that we were designed to be regenerators that humans want that, we need that, we thrive on that. When we give back, when we recycle our energy, it regenerates us. And yet we're living with this false promise that consumerism promises to us. If we just consume enough and get enough of the right goodies, we'll be happy, we'll be satisfied. And we're called consumers, rather than seen and appreciated as brilliant, loving, creative, capable healers. And that we all have that as our birthright. We all are attuned to different pieces of it. Maybe we're a cook. Maybe we're an artist. Maybe we're a, a mechanic. Maybe we're a doctor. Uh, maybe we're a musician. Maybe we're somebody who just wants to help their fellow neighbor. Uh, we're all capable. And the world feeds us all this energy so that we can do it. And, um, you know, this sounds spiritual or like I'm, you know, some... Uh, flower child airhead but my history of 50 years of tree people uh, five decades and the work we did mobilizing city of los angeles's first second and only crowdsourced community-based disaster relief operations for early onset climate change where people were dying from floods and public officials We're not capable of responding to the magnitude of the threat back then. And we aren't any better now, but we've done it. We've mobilized thousands of people to save thousands of lives, hundreds of lives and homes. And it's important to tell those stories because they're real. They're done by people choosing to help people, no matter our color, our background, our politics, coming together, holding hands. And this is something we have to learn to do more and more and more quickly. And that's my full focus right now is uh, since leaving tree people, they're working on a big piece of climate change and that work is well in hand with tree people and other tree group partners in the city and the county, everyone working together to realize, you know they've realized we need more tree canopy to literally cool the city down Uh, 40% tree canopy cover can reduce temperatures by seven to nine degrees and save a lot of lives in severe heat. We can get into that. But that's a lot of work. It's a big job. Treat people as well-equipped and helping lead that work. Um, and I am freed up in retirement to focus on technology to help do that and tackle more pieces of it.
0: I'm intrigued by the denial that, uh, well, you just made a, a quick passing reference to uh, denying climate change for 40 years. Yeah. Yeah being similar to the denial of COVID, the idea that COVID is a hoax. And uh, denial seems to be a mindset. We're really good at looking the other way, and we're so disconnected from nature that it's easy for us to miss the larger lesson in all of this, which is that there's just one thing at work, a universe. There's one environment on this planet, an ecosystem that is symbiotic and interreliant and interdependent. And you can't separate anything from anything. And I think that's really what divides the left and the right in America. The left is more likely to see the harmony and the unity and the connection, the right is a little more, or in many cases, a lot more self centered and seeing everything as separate and disconnected. You know, it's
1: it, it's interesting. I, I don't, I, I mean, I think that those divisions absolutely exist. I'm not sure it is is accurately demarked with left and right, though it's easy to go there, very easy for us to go there.
0: What is that division then?
1: Well, uh, I think whenever we set, su- the path that you're on that I want to agree with is our, our perception that we're separate from nature. That we're not in nature. Uh, that division is deadly, and um, science has gotten so good that we we know more than ever. When you know we we were chatting about the separateness, and I, I just want to acknowledge that that this right-left division that has grown, the gap has grown tremendously. You know, over the last uh, five, four years, and or five years and continues to get worse because I think it's great media fodder and people are making money on it. The amazing thing is that disaster relief operations we did in that flood of 1978, uh, which was the first one I was talking about, community-based, crowdsourced. Uh, The city got hit by an El Nino storm water that was so hot, it wasn't possible. They'd never seen it before. It turned out that was the first El Nino current coming across the ocean. And what followed it was an atmospheric river that dumped huge amounts of water in Los Angeles, more than LA's soil could handle, that once it was saturated after three days rain, we started to have landslides. And people's houses were starting to move, getting hit by mudslides or or rivers of mud. And they picked up the phone and had to dial operator. We didn't have 911 yet. And they called for help. And the response was, sorry, we got nothing for you. We're the fire department. We don't do this. We can't We can't get there. There's too many hundreds and hundreds of people are calling for help. We don't have the ability to help. City Newly elected city council member, Zeb Yaroslavsky, watched as we helped some neighbors near tree people. Uh, they, they called us, and asked for shovels and I, we brought a truckload of shovels there and saw the river coming at their house, the river of mud. And so, wow, you don't need shovels, you need you need a lot of people. And together with them we gathered 60 neighbors and in a couple hours we built sandbag walls that, that protected the home and channeled the mud around them and the homes were saved. Xavier Sovsky watched us and helped us do that. And when the storm got worse two weeks later and really hit And they knew it was going to get really, really bad. He called and said, could you scale what you did back there in Benedict Canyon? And I said, yeah. I said, what do you need? And I said, we need a hotline from the city's emergency command center to our office. And we were, Tree People was at the top of Coldwater Canyon, Mulholland Drive, in an old 1920s fire station that the fire department had abandoned. And we had gotten a permit to move in there. So they gave us a hotline I said, we need 10 more phone lines so people can call us because we're gonna reach out to everyone in LA through the media and invite able-bodied people to volunteer. And I'll let you know what else we need. And we did that and we, we put the word out through the media. You might've actually carried a call for volunteers. News media did it, gave out the phone number. We made sure people were 18 and sounded sane. and We told them where to come. We started putting them in little teams, training them how to work together, how to sandbag. Most importantly, what showed up that we couldn't have anticipated was off-road vehicle clubs, people with 4 by 4s Jeeps, and all of that. They were members of clubs, and the clubs organized and came to us and said, we can give you transportation into the mud. The other people who showed up was ham radio operators, and they said, we can give you communications. And Within 12 hours, we had a mobile army. Now, Why am I telling you this? We were able to deploy 1,200 volunteers and they saved over three days' time 300 homes. But your question about the division of left and right is really important. These off-road vehicle association people, many of them had bumper stickers that said kill a Sierra Clubber. It said what? They said what? Kill a Sierra Clubber because the Sierra Club was trying to protect the deserts where they were wanting to go with all their freedom and, and be out in the desert. And they're saying, we can't be harming that. And the Sierra Club is saying, you are, and we need to stop it. These same people who were very angry about their rights getting limited were caring, powerful individuals. And we on the tree people side, aside from the, the few of us who had our costumes on, which were ranger shirts <laughs> that made us look a little more legitimate, but, you know, we were kind of long-haired hippie-like people. The left-right division was completely gone. And the miracle that was created was the synergy and the power of people working together and caring. And that's what we are capable of every moment. And we have to drop this bullshit that's literally killing us and will kill us.
0: It is nonsense and it is not political. I think you're right. Uh, media makes a buck.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Politicians, of course, pile on that for their own purposes, but what I was saying is that the division has to do with separation, the delusion that I am a separate individual. You you made reference to freedom existing without responsibility. That's not freedom. That's anarchy. Exactly.
1: Yeah. No, I, and in this, I completely agree with you. It it is about our believing that we're somehow separate and every bit of um, really new breaking research and also, you know, information from hundreds of years back from uh, from beliefs, but now cutting edge science showing just how connected we are, especially to trees um, and that they really, um, I mean, they're so critical to our life support in every way. I mean, we know how they filter carbon dioxide and other chemicals and and toxins out of the air and produce fresh oxygen, how much trees are critical to us having a water supply, as well as protecting us from floods, as well as cleaning up pollution. But now we know how trees are completely interconnected, sharing everything through the network of fungus, mycelium, and that they share everything. They share water, nutrients, antibiotics rather than what we have been taught is that we are competitors and that the way we survive is the survival survivor of the fittest as humans who have to fight it out. It's bullshit. And they always said, well, that's the way it happens in nature and with trees. And no, it's totally cooperative and interoperative. And, um, you know, trees can send for hundreds, thousands of feet nutrients to other trees, uh, and send water to each other as they do in a forest. No one ever knew that, but they're sending information as well. And there's pretty good science evolving about how that affects an Intuanet.
0: I have to take a break. Let's talk about symbiosis. I think we can come up with several really beautiful examples of symbiosis, of interdependence and interreliance. I read that uh, even Darwin used the word cooperation more than he used competition in describing the origin of the species. Nature is a collaboration. There's no question about it. Survival of the fittest is not what it may seem to be if you just look at the way a hawk takes a rabbit, for example. But let me take a short break and we'll come back. My guest, if you haven't figured it out, is Andy Lipkis of the Tree People, the president and founder of this organization. He ran it for over 30 years. He's now, you know, I hesitate to say retired because Andy's never going to quit doing, <laughs> doing what he does. But we'll be back with more on the environment, the ecology, the importance of trees, climate change, and this horrible drought that we find ourselves in here in the West. You're listening to KPFK. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I'm Michael Benner, and we'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders. Make your tax-deductible donation to KPFK.org today. Membership has privileges. Becoming a sustaining member of KPFK, keeping independent radio alive at KPFK.org. You can't beat it. Free speech radio can't survive without your generous support. So become a KPFK sustaining member right now. You can pledge as little as a dollar a day at kpfk.org. And thanks. And we're back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. Today we're talking about the environment. We're talking about the ecosystem, about climate change, what we used to call global warming and the greenhouse effect. And it's hard to believe. We have been discussing this for 35 or 40 years. Uh, I saw a old Star Trek episode not long ago from the late 80s. Really, from the late 80s. So that was like 35 years ago where part of the storyline, which obviously was said in the future, was talking about Earth in the late 20th century when climate change had such a devastating impact. And again, this is shot in Hollywood in the late 1980s. So we've known all along Uh, this is... If you're young, you might think this is a brand new concern that all of a sudden we're surprised to find out that these greenhouse gases are causing this global warming and having such a devastating impact. This has been forewarned and acknowledged by scientists for easily four decades.
1: The magnitude of the accelerating climate violence that we're experiencing that is surprising people it, it is also every bit of it was predicted. I mean, a lot of people don't believe that there's enough humans on the earth to damage it enough for that to happen. Uh, and the fact is there are enough humans. <laughs> there, there are billions of us. The pollution that we've developed, uh, and produced and spread around the world has, has crippled and, and, um, Affected and corrupted and damaged every single ecosystem on the planet. Well,
0: it's not just the people; it's the fossil-based fuels. But you're right. There's this cascading effect where the, for example, as the as the uh, global warming reaches the tundra, it releases all of this trapped methane gas, and the whole process is accelerated. Yeah, millions of years worth.
1: So, what can we reverse? So we take the approach of climate resilience with an intention of saving as many lives as possible, uh, adapting as fast as possible, mitigating the causes. And we have to do all of those simultaneously. My son lives in in New Orleans. You know, they had uh, less than 48 hours notice from a tiny storm that suddenly blossomed into a category four and was just short of a category five hurricane. And, um, you know, looking at the projected path and seeing that it was changing, it was no surprise to me that it might reach New York. It was shifting north. I mean, it's terrible that people weren't prepared there. They should not have been surprised. And the challenge with climate denial that has made it difficult for any news reporter to talk seriously and even focus on climate because it makes people uncomfortable and people say, you know, you are it's not that bad, you're politicizing and all that stuff That's what killed people, was the inability to to tell the truth and to look that truth and those possibilities and the real science directly in the face. Say, okay, what does that mean? What do we need to do to live with this? What do we need to do to adapt so people don't die?
0: Again, the same thing can be said about COVID. The parallels of climate
1: change and COVID are striking, don't you think? Well, it, they are, in the, and it's um, sad and it's frustrating because when I got, when I retired from Tree People and started the new work, Accelerate Resilience Los Angeles, is what it's called. It's a short-term project to try to help people, communities, individuals, families, communities and neighborhoods and cities rapidly adapt to make ourselves safe. And, um, it, it, and it recognizes in Los Angeles, we face some very, very dangerous extremes from heat, severe heat that is killing people in L.A. now and will get a lot worse to fire. We know. And yet we also have a hard time understanding that it can be uncontrollable, uh, but we can work with fire and water to make it safe for people by managing the land and the forests well and right. Water on three levels, water supply, flooding, and drought, we face all of them as major climate threats that can kill us here. And we have to respond. Food security is also a big threat. The possibility we got a glimmer of it with COVID when farmers started burying their food on their farms because they couldn't move them in the trucks to the stores. And um, those are very, very real. And Thankfully, a lot of people showed up and built, held hands, literally companies, people, and recreated the created new supply lines to get the food from the farms into people, into their families. Groups like uh, CLA who helped get farmers uh, farms into farmers' markets into South LA and East LA and uh, you know profoundly food challenged communities, food deserts. They've gotten all that set up, but, you know, long before COVID and and these farmers markets were getting good, healthy food into communities uh, that were food insecure. And then there's COVID and the farms have to lay off their workers and shut down. The farmers markets were closed. And what CLA did was um, build a pipeline, uh, getting some funds so that farmers could hire their people back, grow the food, package it in boxes and then move it to the city and then what CLA did was organize uh, food box distributions first at the Coliseum and then across Los Angeles, working with Food Forward, the LA Food Bank, assembling that food and people could just drive up and have a box of food for a family of four to feed them for a week, dropped in the trunk of their car. Cedar Sinai helped get that funded and started. Arla helped um, with a bridge grant as well as did others. And then Oprah saw how effective that was and she helped fund the scaling of that uh, wider across the city and other places. These are people holding hands, people taking action. The threat is real, and we don't have to be sitting ducks. So science is known; the answers are known. We have to take action. It's just uncomfortable. It's not stuff pe- people that everyone understands, and so they go into denial or there's a distrust bug. But when I got, when I started, Arla, the, you know, the belief was if we could show people instead of talking about polar bears and melting ice caps and sea level rise, which is the dominant climate change conversation, really look at the very real threats that we face here in this city in Los Angeles. And they are very real and very dangerous and they are fixable. It is possible if we will take action, but it, it needs to include everybody. Meeting neighbor to neighbor to talk about what you're going to do when the flood comes, when the fire comes, when the pipe runs dry. There's all kinds of stuff that we can do. And through the work that I did for years at Tree People, we started reaching around the world, especially with drought, which is a major threat for Los Angeles. We looked to Australia whose uh, lifestyles were so compatible to ours. I married one one of them, but they faced uh, early onset climate change around uh, 10 and 20 years before we do with this same kind of Mediterranean climate that we have that much of Australia has. And they got hit by a 20-year drought called the Millennium Drought. It started around 1998, 99, and it went for 12 years. And it nearly took out the country. It was horrible. And what they did was take an old tradition of capturing rainwater in tanks, the old tradition they had them on farms and in rural communities, and they brought that into the city. And in cities, the, the... the government working with the water agencies said, we need to give people tanks or make them really cheap so people can capture the rain because it was still raining. But just like our cities, we throw away the rain. That's how crazy that is because we're very, very similar in that way. And even in this drought, it has rained a lot here. And I'll give you the numbers in a second. But what they did in Australia was uh, the government, federal and state governments, said to the water agencies, we're going to give people tanks. And You know, the water agencies were saying, well, we're going to lose our income from billing people if they've got their own water. They said, don't worry about it. We need to do this and we'll figure out a new finance scheme for you later. And so by incentivizing making rain tanks or cisterns, as they're known there, making them affordable so people could easily buy them and install them, installing tanks, a thousand gallons, five thousand, ten thousand gallons per house within five years, 40% of the homes in the city of Melbourne, which is the exact same size as Los Angeles, all the single family homes, 4 million people, 40% of the homes installed them within five years. Same with Sydney that has even more people. In two other big cities, Adelaide and Brisbane, 50% of the homes installed tanks. What happened when, that, when people had water that they captured that was available for their food, for toilet flushing, for sanitation, for whatever they needed, they were able to really cut back on their their city water, pipe water use, radically. In other words, let me see if I
0: get this. You're talking about capturing rainwater, essentially. As gray water, you, would they also boil it and drink it? Or is this just for toilets and lawn watering? And
1: I won't call it gray water. Gray water is somewhat contaminated, but it can be a little bit contaminated for whatever's on your roof. The first use was for landscape irrigation, for car washing, for laundry. Um, they made it legal to plummet inside for toilet flushing and laundry. And so like Los Angeles, 40 to 70 percent of the water we use in, in L.A. is for landscape and outside the home. So a lot of the water that we use, we don't need to be a drinking water quality. But they also they had their emergency water their water bank account, if you will, right in their face. They could see where the water was coming from. They could check their tanks every day. In fact, what turned me on to this was when I first went on tour there, not in the countryside, but just suburban areas where people were living on tank water. And, and I heard these the neighbors greet each other with a question, how are your tanks? It wasn't how's the weather, how are you going? It was how are your tanks? And I said, what do you mean? And they explained that they were saying, how are you getting by? Do you need some water? How are you managing How's the weather treating you? All these things have linked with each other, linked with the environment, and they would help each other get by. And that is something that then extended into into the city. So what happened was um, Australia started in their drought. Their average water use was about 50 gallons per person per day. They got it closer to 25 gallons per person per day. Back in our L.A.'s drought, back uh, in 2013, 14, 15, we were using closer to 125 gallons per person per day here. And we, LA, with a good drought program, uh, good messaging, got our water use down to about 50 gallons per person per day. But Los Angeles in, in Australia, they dropped their water use and kept it low because they learned. And several other things happened. You know, we talk about desalination, which has to be powered by nuclear energy or petroleum energy. It is not a great thing and people are saying well if the water is sitting out there in the ocean we just need to desalinate it and bring it in here well that's not the first thing we need to do in in australia they they started building these extraordinarily expensive multi-million dollar per plant in all their major cities they so cut back their water use with the tank water that they didn't need the water from the desal plants and they got it much quicker than the plants could be could be built why that's important here in L.A. is that even in this drought, we are still receiving water. And, and get this, on a typical year in Los Angeles, this is research I started doing back at Tree People, and, and the numbers were astounding. Uh, and at first, Department of Water and Power didn't believe it. But in a typical year, a, a 12 to 15 inch rainfall year in Los Angeles, L.A. receives more than half the water it needs in rainfall. But LA City throws away 90% of that water. We import 90% of our water, and we retain about 10%. We import water by extending three rivers into LA. The Colorado River, the Owens River, and the Sacramento River have all been extended by canals into LA, and that delivers 90% of our water. The problem we have now is that with climate change, very real, is the snowpack, And the rainfall that would hit the Sierras and the Rocky Mountains to bring that water all the way in here, the snow is melting fast. There's nothing on Shasta right now. And it's a long term issue. We've disrupted the rain cycle. And so that water that we used to count on is no longer available. But the climate forecast for Los Angeles is that we will receive roughly the same amount of water, average water, 15 inches a year, will receive the same or more. So what happens? Los Angeles in the past year received 5.82 inches of water, definitely drought, instead of 10 to 15 inches. Still, when it rains an inch in Los Angeles, 7.6 billion gallons of water falls on LA. And half of it soaks into our lawns and the soil, half of it runs off. 3.8 billion gallons for every inch runs off. So from the 5.8 inches of rain that we got this year, we threw away over 22 billion gallons. That's 5,500 gallons for every person in Los Angeles. And it's capturable is the point. And what I did was take the program that Australia did to get people cisterns and look at what could we do in Los Angeles. And to their credit, the Department of Water and Power LA Bureau of Sanitation, LA County Flood Control came together with us. First of all, LA Department of Water and Power, it took us years to, get to convince them to do it, but they commissioned their own study on what was possible for Los Angeles, a rain uh, water capture master plan, and they validated our numbers that rain represented half the water we needed. What has to happen in order for us to do something like that in Los Angeles so it's not affordable if one agency does it by themselves but that why we brought three agencies together is we brought together DWP Department of Water and Power who's the water supply agency they buy water from the Colorado River from all these sources and bring it in county flood control districts responsible along with city sanitation for getting rainwater polluted rainwater out of town so they're the ones who move water out None of them designed L.A. That was a design of the Army Corps of Engineers who had this motto of keeping water and people apart. So whenever rain fell, they saw it as their job to get rid of it, to prevent us from floods and rot, where we could have actually just better designed how we work with land, soil and trees to do that. But they didn't. So we throw away the water. So we needed to bring together the three agencies that are all working in one sense They are all regulated separately. One delivers water, one cleans water, one gets rid of water. And so, but they're all regulated by different regulators. And it's very hard for them to change because if they blow it, they get busted. So, but we brought them all together to say, look, and and invited them each to bring 30 of their best engineers to a a day-long design exercise called a charrette, where the chiefs of the agencies, along with the mayor, Mayor Corsetti's office, 100 people got together to design a retrofit of L.A. where most every home could get a cistern, but not just a cistern, electronically remote-controlled and network cisterns. So homeowner could have water for drinking, water for landscape, but that same water that's held in the tank could be captured. And with the remote control, the water agency or flood control or sanitation could release that water and channel it and use it send it downstream, collect it. First of all, use it to make sure that fish and salmon could return to the river. They could use it to control and modulate a flood. They could use it to send small quantities of polluted water before a major rain to the sewage treatment plant. So this whole remote control system was built and tested on six homes and it worked perfectly. The problem was it was too expensive for any one agency to do it. And we don't manufacture tanks in town. We saw that the economics could work, that the thousands and thousands of jobs that could be created, tending the land to capture the rain, managing this new great technology and ensuring we had water for firefighting, for cooling, for crops, right in our neighborhoods, right within reach of everybody. It's technically feasible. We have videos on it online, capture the rain and rebuild the economy. If you Google that, it blew people's minds, but getting the radical change Uh, to shift over, to step out of our silos and forge partnerships between bureaucracies. It's a hard thing to do because they're regulated and they make safety first a a really high priority. But we, uh, we know it's possible and we're facing that kind of a drought now where we could turn it around and create really, really important, really, really meaningful jobs, a whole new set of careers in urban watershed management capturing the water we have, because we need it for firefighting. We need it to support tree canopy to cool lives. We need it to have locally grown food. We need it to cool the city down to save lives as well. How can people get more
0: information? Where where should we direct people if they're inspired by what you're saying and they want to get involved in some way?
1: Yeah, I, I, I suggest people... Go to Tree People, who is networking with organizations all across the city, other tree groups, city plants, uh, Northeast Trees, KYCC, which is Korea Youth Community Center, all doing tree planting all across the city, working with the city to increase tree canopy. And um, more organizations are uh, are joining up, LA Compost and Tree People working on soil, uh, as well as another group called Kiss the Ground. So they are coming together uh, with really good science and translating it into the things that people can do. I want to underscore that this isn't a pipe dream or a tank dream. You know, s- standing on tree people's shoulders, UCLA organized its first ever Millennium Grand Challenge with a focus on can L.A. be 100 percent water and 100 percent energy independent? And they focused a lot of their science and engineering organizations on the UCLA campus on this problem. And they solved it with uh, with water. They said we could absolutely get to 100% locally supplied water and all the thousands of jobs that would be included in that. And they started with the 50% water that could be supplied by the rain, but also said if we would clean up the San Fernando Valley Aquifer, which is one of the deepest on Earth, 5,000 feet deep, but it's contaminated with uh, old rocket fuels and um, jet fuel and stuff like that from back from World War Two, that can be cleaned up and served safely now, but it it has to be paid for and done. That recycling all the water from our, from LA's three wastewater treatment plants, not to use for drinking, but to use for, as you had asked before, to use for irrigation and other non-drinking needs. And keeping our water use at about 50 gallons per person per day. So capturing the rain, cleaning up and serving the aquifer, recycling the water from our waste treatment plants uh, for safe, very safe use and uh, and conserving water gets us to a hundred percent. It invests a lot of the money in people, in jobs, really good jobs across the town. All of that is within reach. And when you're asked as could we reverse the climate crisis, Yes, it'll take a tremendous amount of work. It'll take us working together, and it's absolutely within reach. But it has to be done smart. We have to believe in science. We have to take action. It doesn't mean we live with less. We're going to live richer because we're holding hands, and we're being secure and saving each other's lives.
0: That's all so well said, and thank you for that. Again, I made reference to the parallel between COVID and climate change, and we talked about the horrible consequences of suffering from the delusion that we're all separate and often feel so alone and so alienated. But if we learn the lessons of interreliance and symbiosis from nature, if we remember great stories like the one you told about the four wheel drive people working with the hippie environmentalists and If there's anything to learn from COVID, it's that humanity is a single family, that all life in all kingdoms, plant, animal, human, yes, even the mineral kingdom is part of one whole thing working together. That can help create and reinforce the shift necessary for all of this stuff to make sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we, we have to reach beyond our comfort zones. And so, you know, the focus of this work is urgently, uh, traditionally underserved communities that, and, and I want to leave on that point that the tree canopy in Los Angeles is inequitable. It's been, uh, planted in areas, uh, it is much denser of areas that predominantly Anglo and wealthy. And, um, and you can map the heat, and you can map the death in Los Angeles today. So these are scary and hard statistics, but they're real. They're from county health department. They've been proven over and over again. If you are Latinx living in Los Angeles, you're 46% more likely to die on the fifth night of a heat wave than Anglo people. If you're African American, you're 48% more likely to die. This is based on what's happening. This is the same numbers as COVID. It is because of quote unquote background issues, but it's because neighborhoods in East LA, South LA, Northeast San Fernando Valley, some of them have under 6% tree cover, tree canopy cover. There are neighborhoods in other parts of LA that, that have that 22, 30, 40% tree canopy cover. And so that those inequities have to be addressed. Well and quickly and and more and more organizations from across the city, Pacoima Beautiful, the LA Conservation Corps, Northeast Trees, KYCC, to extend that can- and the city plants from the from DWP and the mayor's office to extend that canopy quickly. So there's hope, but it has to happen. I'm old enough
0: to remember when airplanes had smoking and non-smoking sections. Right but it was so absurd because you were all on the same airplane breathing the same air and this idea that we're separate that as you say if I live in an affluent neighborhood it doesn't matter what's happening in the ghettos and the barrios and it's not true, it's not separate it's one planet one people, one heart, one mind we gotta get that clear I think that's an overriding concept that when we deal with a bigger picture, we got to get really clear on that. Separation is a, an illusion. Andy Lipkiss, our guest today on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Thanks again, Andy, and thanks to each of you for tuning in. Hope you make it a habit to join us every Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock on KPFK at 90.7 FM. This program is podcast to all podcatchers on all platforms. And you can also hear it stream on demand at theagelesswisdom.com. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.